Yeah, amen, amen. Ooh, hallelujah. Good morning. Okay, so first off, I just got to take kind of blind, these blinding lights. I'm going to take a look at you. I can see you. I see you. My eyes, thank you for praying for my eyes. I see the colors. Very bright. So now I'm like Superman. And I will see if you try to take a little nap during the uh, sermon. So, <laughs> Yeah, call them out. No. Anyway, do, uh, so if, for those who were here uh, last weekend, did you enjoy Mr. Eric Metaxas? It sounded like a lively uh, time that you guys had together. What a character. And so I, uh, I did get to, um, by the way, he, his first service message was different uh, in many ways than the one you guys heard. So I think if you go back online, you can maybe watch that one as well. But we did afterwards, you know, I was at home and, and he went into my office and we did a little Zoom uh, interview with him for about 25 minutes. So that will be on our um, app, which if you don't know is Maranatha Chapel TV. It's a free app and then you can watch that. And so thank you to Eric. Uh, I just thought that was so good, so encouraging. Uh, from so many different things, and I've already started reading his book, and you know, there's other things you can learn and, and explore and go on this incredible journey, uh, which I thought was such a great job. From you know, the, the Time Magazine article he started with, you know, Is God Dead? Uh, from 1966, and then today, all, all science basically backing into wait a second, there just looks like a lot of fine tuning and other things that are going on. So it's great, great stuff. Um, and then uh, it was, let's see, a week ago, not this last Wednesday, but the week before that, how many of you were here or have watched about the red heifer? Okay, quite a few of you. So, you know, I don't have time to go into all of that, but l let me just say this. Uh, so we had two Orthodox rabbis that are here. They, uh, they have not had a red heifer in 2,000 years. So these are, so we're Christians and we believe Jesus is coming back, the Messiah. Well, the Orthodox Jews also believe the Messiah is coming imminently. So they're getting ready to, they've, they've got all the furniture for the temple. As soon as they go, okay, uh, you know, you can have it. They, they I've heard estimates uh, like maybe eight months uh, that they would be ready to rock and roll. But before they can do that, they have to have uh, the ashes of a red heifer. And there's many details involved in that. It comes from the Bible, Numbers chapters 18 and 19. Um, but they haven't found one in, like I said, 2,000 years. These guys come to Texas, my friend Robert Mawiri and uh, Byron Stinson, and they found, when they came here, they announced, we found three, first three that have ever been found. So, and then I got a call from Byron. He said, we found a fourth one. And they want to get a total of seven. Why? Because, you know, they've got to transport them over to Israel. And what if one of them gets sick or they, they die or something happens? So they want to make sure that within a couple of years, they're ready to go on that. So anyway, there's, I'm going to be doing some more teachings uh, on it, on step into the story and kind of fill you in on what is this? What does this mean? And where we are? We're at an exciting time. And I'll tell you this, this is a time to be wake, wake up, look up. The King is coming. Jesus is on the throne. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. And okay. So with that, let's open our Bibles to the book of, uh, 
Acts chapter 26. We're going to go through an entire chapter. So we're going to be going fast. So put on your seatbelts. Yeah, buckle up. This is quite a story. This is uh, the Apostle Paul. The, the, he's going to be giving his testimony. And the title of the message is A God Story. So this is pretty much Paul testifying to the Jewish king at the time. You'll find out his name is Agrippa. But Paul's testimony is a God story. And what I want to say is that Paul's not the only one that has a testimony. Every single one of you who are saved and born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, what I, I, you know what I would really would love to do? And this is one of the favorite things when I meet people and get to know them a little bit is one of the questions I like to ask is, so how and why and when did you become a Christian? And to hear their testimony, because that's unique to you. And I love to remind people, look, you have no idea how powerful your personal testimony is. Because the reality is you, out of seven billion people on planet Earth, you're the expert on you. You know what I felt, what I grew up, what I experienced, what I went through. This, nobody can tell me what I have been through in my life. This is me. So you're the expert on that, and it's very powerful. And every Christian has a God story of how the Lord brought you to that place. So let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word and your will. I thank you for those who are here. Uh, I, I welcome all those who are, you know, uh, watching online or at home or in a condo somewhere in another state or even in another country. But Father, we come before you and before your throne and how we worship and thank you uh, and come before you in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Oh, how we love you and honor you, O Lamb of God. And may we hear what the Spirit would say to us, we are living in some pretty uh, desperate times. So may we hear what the Spirit would say to us for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so number one in your outline, I'll give you a few uh, points, life lessons, I call them. Nothing, so here's point one. Nothing brings more happiness than sharing your own testimony with somebody else. So chapter 26, uh, the ver first three verses, says, so then Agrippa, this would be King Agrippa, he's the king of the Jews, said to Paul, Okay, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And I love what it says next. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. So everybody look up here. So in those days when you wanted to gather a crowd, you, have a, you know, and you want to speak, you just go, you give them the wave. Kind of, the, I call it the queen wave, the king wave, whatever. So everybody lift up your hand and just go like this. See, do that in your home, all your kids will listen to you. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> I think myself happy. King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs, because you are you're expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Now, so here's Paul. He's in jail. He's actually in Caesarea. He's in chains. Uh, he's accused of things. They want to put him to death, but they really have no accusations. How did Paul get here? And I want to just say this was not Paul's idea. This was not Paul's plan, but this was God's plan. 
Sometimes, you know, Paul's plan was, I, you know, the Holy Spirit said, set aside Paul and Barnabas to go on missionary, send them out to plant churches, preach the gospel, which they did all around the Mediterranean, all throughout the Roman Empire. That's all these letters to Corinth and Galatia and Philippi and Colossae. These are all cities of the ancient Roman Empire that Paul planted churches and then he wrote letters to them. That's what Paul's plan was. Now God allows him to get arrested. And he was arrested in Jerusalem, by the way, under false charges. But what happened when he got arrested, and they wanted to kill him. But when he was arrested, Paul the Apostle had the opportunity to do something that was the dream of his life. Because now that he knew the Messiah, and as we're going to see, the testimony of Jesus' personal, glorious, resurrected visitation to him, he, his desire was, I want to bring the message of Jesus' resurrection to the whole Jewish world. So now he is brought before the Sanhedrin. That's like the Supreme Court of Israel. Uh, both politically and religiously, there is no higher court. So he got to preach the gospel in a crusade that had the Sanhedrin in it. And he was able to then share with them about Jesus Christ. Now. They couldn't, you know, make the charges stick. So now they had to move him to Caesarea, which was, you know, it's a, the city on the Mediterranean coast. It's where Rome's headquarters, because Rome ruled the world. So Rome ruled Judea from this coastal city on the edge of uh, Israel, the Mediterranean, called Caesarea. So he now is brought before uh, the governor at that time. His name is uh, Festus. So now Paul in Caesarea, still in prison, gets to preach to Festus, a Roman governor. And they all hear the gospel because Paul was arrested on, and imprisoned on false charges. And finally now he's going to be brought before King Agrippa, the king, quote, of the Jews. Not Paul's plan, but it was God's plan. And now he's been put on hold because he's in prison for two years. But he keeps getting to preach the gospel to all these high officials. But his life was put on a, like a pause button, a two-year detour. He would have been traveling around. But now he's stuck and he's in a place that's beyond his control. So what I want to ask you is this. As Paul was kind of placed in an uncomfortable position and place and time and situation, but it wasn't his doing, but yet God was using these two years. So I want to say to you that right now we're coming up on almost two of the craziest years that we have ever known. Can I hear an amen on that? A lot of chaos. And look, as Christians, we're thrown into the middle of all this. You know, it affects us. Arguments, debates, health, mass, vaccines, school, forcing this. Can we do this? What about our kids and schools? I mean, whoo, it's all been thrown into the air. And it's a very trying time. But may I say that this is, it's not like God is up in heaven going, whoa, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> God has known about it. And if God has ever known about it, it means that God has known about these last two years for eternity. And therefore, God made a plan. Just as he knew Paul would be in prison and put on hold for two years, and God said, I'm going to use this 
for the advantage of the kingdom. It will be during those two years, I will bring my son Paul to preach to the highest courts of Israel and the governors of Rome and before kings, like King Agrippa. So what I want to say to you is that I believe that part of what God is allowing these last two years, and this is one of the keys to the message today, is that, so I'm making application. Paul, in a time of desperation, was able to share his testimony with huge impact. May I say that I believe that God is allowing, and it's not just in the United States anymore. Uh, This is literally, the whole world is wrestling with this tiger. And God is bringing the world to a place of uncomfortable desperation. And what I want to say is that God uses and God allows human times to come into places and windows, two years almost, of desperation, because it would take that for those who are fine, they're comfortable, they've got money, they got, you know, but they have no spiritual life, and they are literally headed for hell for all of eternity. And God said, I'm going to put a stop to that and wake them up and open a crack or a window into their lives that they need me. And they start looking up. Can I hear an amen? Do you, feel, do you hear what I'm saying? And I believe that that's what God is doing now. But here's what's also interesting. Look again, uh, verse uh, one and two, it says, so Paul stretched out his hand. I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Paul, his life is on the line. There were 40 men that dedicated themselves to killing him. They said, we're not gonna eat or drink until that man's dead, 40. Well, that did not happen, but still. And then he's in prison. He's being falsely accused, and they can't make it stick, but the, the sentence is death. But what does Paul say? I am happy. This is telling you what's going on inside of Paul. Paul is not standing there shivering, shaking in his chains. Paul is the one man in the room that has a peace that passes understanding. He has a quietness and a confidence. He is seen beyond the veil, as we're going to see in just a moment, his testimony, who's on the throne, who's alive, who's ruling, who's reigning, and he gets to give testimony of him. He goes, man, I am one happy man. So what I want to say is that, and what was he happy about? Because God had told him, I will give you opportunities to share your personal testimony, which is Paul's personal God story with other people. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you will be, along with me, sensitive to this very moment of time, literally day by day, as we're going through this craziness together, God was going to bring people, and so here's what I want you to look for. Look for people who are desperate. And don't get into answering their political questions or economic questions. What do you think about the health or the vax or the mask or whatever it is? Don't get sidetracked with that. But look for those moments to say, you know what? There's a deeper meaning to everything that's going on. And would you like me to tell you about how I have a peace? I'm so happy. Not because of what's happening on the outside, but because of what I've experienced on the inside. And they're like, yeah, tell me about it. Right? So... Joy came from Paul's obedience to the Lord. Let it be also for us. Okay, verses 4 through 11. Is there anything too difficult for God? Obvious answer is no. Verses 4 through 11. He says, so he continues on talking to King Agrippa. 
Now, there were many people in the room, but Paul was zeroing in. It's you and me, the king of the Jews, Agrippa. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my nation, my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope. So here's what I'm being judged of. For the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And to this promise, our 12 tribes. Just a quick note if you have a pen or pencil or a highlighter, note 12 tribes. And I don't have time to go into all the reasons, but I just want you to note that uh, because there are some that say, well, look, you know, we don't know where the 10 tribes are. They're lost because the Jews went, you know, they went to Babylon, and then when they came back, only one tribe came back, and that was Judah, and that's why they're called Jews. So the other 11 tribes uh, are gone, or they don't know who they are. And I just want to say that's not really true. Uh, there were 12 tribes here uh, in the days of Paul. God knows who his people are. But anyway, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews for believing in the basic hope which he's going to share, which is the resurrection. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? We're going to talk about that question in just a moment. But indeed, I myself uh, thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't think he was the Messiah either. And this I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints. I shut up in prison, all the, these Christians, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was just like those guys accusing me now. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Oh man, do you, do you, can you imagine how that plagued Paul the rest of his life? Do you not know there was a demon whispering into, you, into his ear? You made your brothers and sisters blaspheme the name of Jesus because of you. And then you're, you're, you're guilty of murder holding the coats of those. Don't you know the devil was there accusing Paul his whole life? Some say that may have been the thorn in his flesh, or it certainly was a part of it. But then in being, and then he says, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So I love this. Let's go to this uh, question that he asks in verse 8. Do you think, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? He goes, that's why really what it all boils down to is, I'm a Jew, a very religious Jew, who believes that God can do anything, and he can raise the dead. That's what we all believe. Now, they don't agree that Jesus is the Messiah, and I believe that he is now, but beside that, there's no reason why you, as a believer and as a Jew, should not say that God can do anything, including raising the dead. So many people today, have a, their problem is really their false concept of God. I, I have met so many people, and, and you know, you get into a little, it's kind of a simple conversation, then it gets maybe a little serious, and you know, you're, you're talking, going along, then all of a sudden it turns spiritual, and you go, oh God, okay, wait a second. And they tell me why they don't believe in God. I don't believe in a God that's vindictive. I don't believe in a God that is, you know, hates people and he's angry all the time. And I don't believe, and they go on their list. And I, I say, yeah, tell me more, you know, get it all out. Then when they get to the end of their thing, I go, well, I don't believe in that God either. Amen. Amen. I said, but there's another God. 
who is my God, who is gracious and loving and merciful and kind and powerful, and he wants to use all of his power and glory to bless you beyond your wildest dreams for all of eternity. Are you interested? I agree. I reject. I'm an atheist for the God that you just described. I don't believe in that one. He doesn't even exist. But let me tell you about the real God. J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Even the people that go, well, yeah, maybe there is a God, but he's not doing anything or he should do this. And they want to advise God on what's happening in the world. I love what J.B. Phillips said. Your God is too small. If you want to, look, if you're going to believe in God, if you don't believe in God, that's a, that's a whole topic and issue we can talk about. But if you're going to believe in God, don't believe in a puny, weak little God. <laughs> believe in God. Amen. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. There are no limitations with him. Amen. And if there are no limitations and his character is consistent from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation, that God is love. Who doesn't want that? To allow his power to be at work in and through your life. Man's concepts of God, man's idea of God, or man creating God in his own mind or image always creates him smaller than he actually is. Difficulty is measured by the capacity of the agent doing the work. So don't bring into the conversation that God's having a problem, or he can't, or he's limited by. Paul zeroes in and shows the inconsistency of any difficulty because God is the one who raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. The Bible begins with this sentence. In the beginning, say it with me, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you believe that, so you're going to believe in God, you're going to believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you really shouldn't have a problem with anything else the Bible is going to say. Because he can do whatever he wants. And what's unique about the God that's revealed through the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is, you know, all of the witchcraft stuff and all of the people that are into aliens and other gods and, you know, coming back millions of times and evolving and all of that craziness. What's unique about God is he just says the word. He speaks and it happens. There's no witch's bruise or things. You got to throw bones over your shoulder or whatever. He just says the word. And, and in Hebrew, so it says, you know, he goes on to say in Genesis, let there be light. But in Hebrew, it's more emphatic. Light be. And light came out of God's mouth over whatever, 300,000 miles an hour. Boom. Whatever God says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's Jesus. Jesus. So God spoke a word, man, I love you. And because whenever God speaks, it becomes God's message of love for mankind turned into the person of Jesus Christ. He is the living word and proof of the love of God. All the way to the cross and all the way to the resurrection. I want you to look at this. So just one of many verses in the Old Testament uh, that, that confirmed that the whole Jewish revelation of the one true God goes all the way to the Old Testament. The book of Job, chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. Let's read this scripture out loud. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh 
I shall see God. Now, let me tell you how amazing this is. Number one, if you don't know this, everybody thinks, oh, you know, Genesis, that was written by Moses, that must be the oldest book in the Bible. Not exactly true. Job lived before Moses. Now, Moses starts his book with the early history of in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he writes forward. But Job actually lived many generations before Moses. And so here, this character, Job, you know the whole story of poor Job and all he went through. But he says here, I know that my Redeemer lives, not only some vague creator God, but he defines, and that's what God's revelation of himself was, I'm not only all powerful, I'm not only creator, I am a Redeemer. That speaks to the nature of the heart of God. He loves to save, he loves to heal, he loves to restore, he loves to redeem. So he goes, I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. This is not Isaiah, Jeremiah prophesying of the Messiah. This is Job so long ago saying, I know that my Redeemer, he will stand on the earth. It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And after my skin is destroyed, in other words, when I die and turn to dust, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job was saying, I believe you know, someone has said, and I always think it's funny, the statistics on death are really quite impressive. One out of every one person dies. All seven billion people gonna die. Go all the way back to human history. They all die. The irony is, science is now trying to get it so we can live forever. But here's, and why do we even want to? With the way things are, but anyway. The point is that that desire, God put eternity into the hearts of men because we were made in the image of God and after the likeness of God, Adam and Eve were made to live for eternity. It was only when they broke away relationship from God, if God is life and you separate from him, you're gonna die. But God knew that. So that's the beautiful thing. No matter where, what happens, or what it unfolds, God already knows it. He's already made a plan. If you know him and you know his nature, he's already made a plan to redeem you from whatever horrible situation there may be. Even death, he says, I'm gonna resurrect. Amen. I just love that. And um, you know, I, I think of uh, you know, Lazarus, real quick, the, the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. They were, you know, a brother and two sisters. They lived in a little village on the top of the Mount of Olives. Jesus would spend the night at their house, and he would go into Jerusalem and teach and come back and spend the night at their house. And then Lazarus gets sick, and he dies. Jesus gets there late. He's been dead for four days, and he shall live. And so Jesus goes, well, let me go to him. And, and so Martha's like, Lord, it's too late. I know you heal people, but he died. It's too late. But I'm a good Jew. I believe that on the day of resurrection, he'll be raised but now, you know, I'm grieving that he's dead and there's nothing more that can be done. And what did Jesus say? I am the resurrection. Now, what, what, Mary, what Martha said was good. That's good Jewish theology. There is a day, and I believe on that day, all the dead are raised. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection, basically what he was telling her is, Martha, there's nothing magical about that day. The only reason that day the dead are going to be raised is because I'm going to be there and I'm going to give the word and I'm going to say, dead, rise now. So he said, when he said, I'm the resurrection, he's saying, I'm the last day. I'm the last day. And the last day is right here, right now. And for your brother, watch this. Lazarus, come forth. And that, 
Little Lazarus, all mummified. Help me, get out of here. He comes mumbling, fumbling, you know, forward. And he's raised from the dead. And that happened just before Jesus' own glorious resurrection. So Paul is now sharing. He goes, I'm so happy because of what I'm able to share with you. I want you to look real quick at the end of verse 11, though. Something interesting that Paul reveals about his former religious self. Verse 11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. Before Paul's conversion, Paul was an angry man. His great rage showed that his relationship with God was not right, despite all his religious observance. And I I do want to say this, that there are those who are very religious, and their life is filled with religion and, you know, church or, you know, going through things, religious, religious, but if they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're doing out of the energy of their own flesh, basically, they're driven by an anger and a rage. And there, sadly, there are some of you in this congregation, you were raised in a home where maybe a dad or a mom or somebody, and they, I just want to say, forgive them, they misrepresented God. That is not God. And Paul did not know the Lord, but he was very religious, but he was driven by rage. And if there's anybody here that you're still driven by rage, then I want to say you need to, like Paul, come to a place of repentance because it's not on us. It's not our ability. It's not our performance. It's by grace. God takes all of the burden, all of the pressure. He gives, he changes your desires. Then he gives you the strength to live and to walk out what you actually believe. And you are a transformed man or woman and child of God. Amen? Beautiful. Okay, so verses uh, 12 through 8. Paul gets into his testimony now. Only God can open our eyes to see the light. So verse 12. So while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. So he goes, I was against the Christians. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So middle of the day, sun's burning and shining, and then a light appears that is so bright, the sun disappears. You realize that day, the, when, when Jesus comes, that's gonna happen again. You're gonna get to see it. The sun will disappear because there's a bigger, greater, brighter light that shines. He saw this light and he goes, and then uh, when we all had fallen to the ground, Those who journey with me, we've fallen to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me. Now, they saw the light. They fell to the ground, but they didn't hear the voice, those who were with Paul. He goes, but I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. So Jesus speaking Hebrew to Paul. He says, Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? You're you're obviously God, but... I don't know who you are. Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. 
So that's relationship. We're going to be talking a lot more, Paul. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Woo! Paul literally saw the light before he figuratively saw the light. When he heard the words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, those words changed Paul's world. He immediately knew Jesus is not dead, he's alive, and he's up there in the middle of the glory of Almighty God, and he knew that he reigns in glory above. And then what Paul must have realized in a flash is, by persecuting the followers of obviously the alive Jesus, I am, I am fighting against the God of my fathers. I'm literally going against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is called to be a witness. A witness is what you have seen, what you have heard, and he is sharing that. And now he is encouraging. Here's what's so encouraging about this. Uh, as you look at it, do you realize what God is doing right here? It's a great example for us. Jesus is talking to his number one enemy at that time on planet Earth. Did you know that God speaks to his enemies? The Old Testament is full of God speaking to pagan, idol-worshiping, let's just say nasty human beings through dreams, through visions, sending prophets to them. And here again, his number one enemy, God speaks to his enemies. Why? Because God loves his enemies. The reality is all you and I were once his enemies, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe and trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to start rethinking our enemies and how we're strategizing and coming against them and fighting them. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And how much better, rather than winning an argument politically, economically, you know, health-wise, school-wise, or whatever, how much better to win a soul for all of eternity by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? That changes the, everything. Can I hear an amen on that? Everything changes when somebody's eyes are open. And I also want to mention this. There are only two realms, darkness and light. There are two kingdoms in this world, two spheres of government. And I'm talking not only this universe, but beyond and wherever else it is. There are no other alien forms with other whatevers. There's one God. There's one Son. There's one Holy Spirit. There's one divine revelation. You're either under the control of God and the kingdom of light, or you are right now under the control of Satan, a kingdom of darkness that, that even now is hell. But in the book of Revelation, it says that when judgment comes and Satan is thrown into that bottomless pit, all of hell and the devil and the Antichrist are thrown into another place of darkness for all of eternity. You're either in one or the other. There's no kind of in between. So where are you? And this, you, you, get a, you get a brief, there's no guarantees uh, of how much time you will have. Jesus said, what does it profit a man? You know, like there's some people, young people that go, well, you know, it's hard to be a Christian. And I wanna just say, it is. It's not easy. 
It's free. It's a gift. But living the Christian life is not easy. If you want to go to heaven, I'm going to just be very honest with you. It's not easy. Jesus said, narrow is the gate, narrow is the way. Few there are that are even going to get into it and be willing to sacrifice. In fact, you've got to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But on the other hand, what does it profit a man if, I'll do it later. I want to make my money. I want to have some fun. I'm going to sow my wild oats or whatever. And then life catches you at a moment you did not know. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul for all of eternity? Paul was sharing with an enemy right there with King Agrippa, and he wanted to bring him to faith in Jesus so he could be saved and born again. Look at verse 19 through 23. How beautiful it is to change your mind. Verse 19 says, Therefore, King Agrippa, again the king of the Jews at the time, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, like I did. Paul is saying, turn to God, do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great. I'll preach to the guy in the street corner, or I'll preach to a king, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, <laughs> now that I've shared with you the truth, you need to repent. I had to repent. I changed my mind. Jesus is the Messiah. And the word repent means to change your, your life. It's actually real change. There is not repentance unless there is change. It's not merely feeling bad because I've done bad things. There are, there are people that go to prison and they feel very bad, but they're more feeling bad that they got caught than what happened. So that when they get out, they just do what they used to do, only try to do it smarter so they don't get caught. That's not repentance. Change is when you go, you know what? I've been banging my head against the wall, going ever into greater darkness, fear, confusion, anxiety, and frustration. I'm done with that. I'm turning around. I'm going toward the light. I'm going toward Jesus Christ. I want love. I want peace. I want happiness. And I'm not just going to walk. I'm going to run into the light as far and fast as I possibly can. That's repentance. It's transformation. It's change. Paul became a different man. And I just, I just love that. Um, okay, so look with me in verses 24 through 32, and we'll kind of wrap it up. He says um, in verse 24, Now when he had thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But, he, you know, he said, you're crazy. And I think why he was saying that is he was kind of going in his mind, this makes a lot of sense. But he was afraid. But he said, and I love what Paul responded, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. He's still honoring the guy. This guy was a disgusting human being, as well as an enemy, but he gave him honor. But speak the words of truth and wisdom for the king before whom I speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. What I think Paul was going in on is Agrippa, 
you know exactly the Jesus I'm talking about. I mean, every, who didn't know who Jesus of Nazareth was? And these things that had just happened a few years earlier, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the people that said he's the Messiah, the, people, the Jews who still say, and now I was one of the enemies, and now he appeared to me, he's our guy. He is the Messiah. I'm not mad, and I'm not crazy, and you've heard of his miracles, and now I'm giving you personal testimony, he's alive and risen from the dead. That's what he was sharing with him. And then he goes, now, uh, he goes, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. Now, let me just say, for those who are in sales, that's called a presumptive sales pitch. What I mean is, let's say you worked in Macy's, and they're telling you, okay, we're having a special on all these new towels that we got, and we want you to try to sell as many towels as you possibly can. So somebody comes in, and they're you know, looking at all the towels, and you come up and go, oh, look, yes, we have the sapphire blue, we've got the emerald green, we've got the crimson red, we've got all of these colors, and they're, oh, yes. So you, know, you assume that they, surely they want these towels, so how many and of which color would you like to buy? That's, that's presumptive sales approach. The other approach where you go, are you going to buy any or just touch all of them? What's going on? That approach will probably not do as well. So, <laughs> yes, I've had that guy who talked to me that way. So that's where it comes from. But anyway, I know you believe. I know you believe in the power of God. Are you ready to make that decision? And look what he says in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am. Because I have so much joy, happiness, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul's appeal would take him to Caesar. It would cost him his life, but that will fulfill his life's destiny. And as far as Paul was concerned, he goes, I I'm ready to go to heaven anyway. But I love this, thou almost persuadest me to become a Christian. God reaches out to those who are desperate. Apparently Agrippa was not desperate enough. I think it's a tragedy that Agrippa was so close. The tragedy of so many people for eternity will be they were so close, but somehow they held back from taking that final step. Now, it's been 2,000 years, and we don't know what happened to Agrippa. We, we can hope maybe he repented later. Probably not. 2,000 years lost in darkness, separated from God. He almost was a believer. He was almost had his sins forgiven. He almost was filled with the Holy Spirit. He almost became a child of God, redeemed and reconciled. He almost was able to enter into the glorious light of the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity that God might love him, spoil him, and bless him forever and ever. Almost, but not. And then left in that place of darkness. So I just want to say, uh, don't when your heart is ready and ripe, don't postpone it and don't say, well, I'll think about it, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. 
The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, if only he had responded to what almost and said, I'm ready to take this step. But he probably had, well, then uh, they'll probably arrest me and bring me down next to that guy or I'll, be, I'll divide my family or, you know. So he had all of these rational reasons that kept him from doing it, but the moment was lost. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity right now. I want you all bow your heads and close your eyes. I can't end this service without giving an opportunity that there may be one man, one woman, one boy, one girl. And, and you know, when you think about it, you can't put a price on eternity. You can't put a price on being saved from eternal darkness. Are you ready? So I'm gonna, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in to them. So I'm gonna just in a moment say a very simple childlike prayer. And if you will pray this with me and be sincere, and I'm gonna ask you to pray it out loud, not to be afraid or ashamed, um, but just to pray out loud with me. And I'll invite everybody that knows the Lord, you can pray with me as well. It doesn't mean we're getting saved again. It's remembering and rehearsing the, the beauty, the preciousness of our salvation. Uh, but this could be literally an eternal changing destiny for someone. And I guess my last question is how desperate, do, you know, how much more desperate does it have to get before it's too late? So take this opportunity now. Don't let it pass you by like Agrippa did. So if you're willing, let's pray together out loud after this manner. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I am so sorry for everything that I've done wrong. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. I open the door of my heart. And I ask you to come into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I receive the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.